When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to Bar Humbug, the Christmas movie podcast that has been visited by three ghosts, but weirdly all of them look like the former king of Denmark and have told me to kill my uncle, so that was weird. Anyway, hello, I'm Helen O'Hara, I'm your host, and today we're here to talk a one-two punch of Charles Dickens, because this year we have two quasi- Christmas Carol adaptations uh, from major studios. We have Spirited on Apple TV and Scrooge A Christmas Carol on Netflix. Joining me to discuss both is Sarah Cook, marketing manager and Victoriana enthusiast. How are you doing, Sarah? Yeah, very good. How are you doing? I am very good. I'm just going to lift the curtain here for people and say that this is the second time we've recorded this because we had problems with the first recording. Uh, So apologies to you, first of all. But uh, but we're going to try and remember what the heck it was we said because we had we had stunning insights the first time, isn't that right? Like, oh my god, it's probably the greatest podcast in human history. It was it was golden, honestly, um, and it's a shame that it's been lost to the ether. Um, no one will get to hear our beautiful, beautiful in depth analysis of these two films. Exactly, but this is just a tribute. So. Um, <laughs> So let's set the scene a little bit for these two films first. Uh, Spirited, the Apple film, is a sort of modern day update of A Christmas Carol. So Will Ferrell here plays the ghost of Christmas past. And, you know, every year they go out and they redeem some awful person. But this year he wants a challenge. He wants somebody who is actually going to give them a bit of grief. And he hits on marketing expert Ryan Reynolds's Clint Briggs. And Clint is going to be the big challenge that will kind of really test his mettle and really prove whether the spirit of Christmas can change people for good. It's all directed by Sean Anders, who made Instant Family. And it is also a musical. So we have songs by Ryan Reynolds, Will Ferrell and the rest of the cast taking us through this modern day version of A Christmas Carol. Now, also out this year, on Netflix is director Stephen Donnelly's film Scrooge, colon, A Christmas Carol. Now, this is kind of an, an animated update of the 1970s, 70-ish uh, musical by Leslie Bricuse. So it's also a musical. This also has those musical numbers. Um, Scrooge is voiced here by Luke Evans, who thankfully has an amazing voice, which helps. Uh, and it is a pretty traditional version of Charles Dickens's Christmas classic, but the animation 
is a little bit more you know, modern and up to date uh, than say Mickey's Christmas Carol and has quite a lot of kind of cosmic purple in it. So I guess, look, first of all, Sarah, let's talk about these films. What did you think? Did you have a favourite? How did they both strike you? I have to be honest, when I first watched Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, the 2022 one with Luke Evans, I did not enjoy it whatsoever. Um, That was two weeks ago. And in those two weeks, I have become deeply and utterly obsessed with hot even Ebenezer Scrooge, aka Luke Evans. And he has taken over my whole TikTok and my life. And I can't stop listening to at least two songs from the soundtrack, uh, which is Tell Me (laughs) and Later Never Comes, which he sings a ballad duet with the wonderful Jesse Buckley. And as much as I want to be like, God, I hate it wasn't a good adaptation. And I know it is. That has infiltrated my life. It is now what I'm hyperfixating on right now. <laughs> so it's not a good film, but also you're obsessed with it, is what you're saying. Yeah, I think uh, I really hate the idea that Ebenezer Scrooge is a hot man, but also kind of love it at the same time. You know, like it it ticks some of my boxes, a hot Victorian gentleman sung by Luke Evans and my critical thinking skills went, and then my, my hot guy brain went, ooh. Um, and I can recognise that it's a really not very good adaptation of the novella and of the 1970s um, film, which is better in so many ways because it's got Albert Finney. But I can also recognise that hot Ebenezer Scrooge is hot Ebenezer Scrooge. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, Albert Finney was not unhot, to no. be fair, you know. <laughs> so I guess I guess perhaps there's there's some kind of um, precedent there. I mean, of course, Michael Caine played Scrooge as well, famously not an unhot man. Um although perhaps past the peak of his hotness at the time when he played Scrooge, with no disrespect to Michael Caine, who remains hotter than any of us will ever be. But yeah, it's it's a weird thing. I, look, combined with, you know, hot Santa in Violent Night, I'm really not sure how I'm supposed to feel about beloved Christmas characters this year. It's very, very concerning. It really is. Um, and I was already grappling with Hot Father Christmas with Kurt Russell in the Christmas Chronicles. Yes. And now I've got two Hot Father Christmases and a hot Ebenezer Scrooge, so... <laughs> Very, very upsetting. Well, just just again, lay out the soul. Um, what did you think of Spirited in comparison? Spirited has been one that I I thought was going to stay with me longer than it has. And unfortunately, I I just thought it was a bit overlong and the songs, apart from one song, it, just so unmemorable. And Will Ferrell really tries his hardest to be a somewhat endearing character but I found there's a lot of cynicism I think I still have a problem with and cynical modern jokes that I just didn't feel fitted in with his character necessarily mm. and I like they did they give it a good gun-ho try uh which I think is admirable but it's just a, a bit forgetful apart from one one amazing musical number <laughs> Yeah, no, we should we should talk about that amazing musical number because it's it's good afternoon, isn't it? I'm assuming it's good afternoon. It's good afternoon. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The absolute it's, which is which is absolutely for me the standout song as well. And and it's all the better because he's basically, you know, singing fuck you, <laughs> frankly, uh, as he sings it. And and that that is his you know, it is taken from the, the Charles Dickens book. There is that scene where um where Scrooge tries to get rid of someone by just repeatedly saying good afternoon and they just keep not taking the hint. It's like when you're on the on the phone to an elderly relative and you know, you have to keep saying, Well, yep, well, you know, a better um Yep, well, I should probably hmm you know, and you keep being there the whole time. Uh, it, obviously good afternoon is what would work. 
Absolutely. And I know I said this last time that I'm a bit of a Victorian purist in the sense that they're not pure. Um, and I find sometimes people can coddle them into to thinking that they never swore or they never had inventive slang or they they knew they don't know what mouth kissing is. Um, but I, I kind of turned my corner on the good afternoon number because you're right. It is what he does all the time in, in these films and in this novella. Um, and it's just such a good lampooning of the Olivers and all the Victorian musical numbers that feature in these kind of like gun ho numbers and has the best cameo, I think of this year in cinema halfway through the song of the wonderful Judy Dench. You know, okay, now you put me on the spot, and I, I I am struggling to think of a better one. That that's a pretty great cameo. Yeah. Oh no, now I can't. No, well, I'm just going to have to agree with you. Yeah, I think that's the best cameo of the year. It's official. It, it's interesting. I mean, casting Will Ferrell and Ryan Reynolds as the leads in your musical. You know, they all do. They do have Octavia Spencer in there, who also has a uh, has a good voice. I would say all of them have good voices. They all carry the songs. They all deliver them. But equally, I would say none of them are going to be troubling. Broadway for the big musical roles in the near future. You know, they don't maybe have the power and the, the oomph of some of the big Broadway stars. So I did kind of want there to be a kind of a, a ringer brought in, you know, and a sort of, I don't know, Kelly O'Hara or Audra McDonald or somebody just dropped in for one big musical number in the middle. <laughs> Absolutely. You know. And the most annoying thing is that they have Patrick Page, who's like a Broadway like legend who has this really deep velvety chocolatey voice and he gets cut off halfway through his no. song because <laughs> he plays he plays marley jacob marley and i was like oh my god patrick page he literally gets cut off and i was like why are we he's the one broadway legend here and we're just cutting off his songs <laughs> it's 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 the worst piece of you know musical legend casting since uh adina menzel appeared in enchanted and didn't get a song so, you know, yeah, I feel your pain for that one. It's, and at least, you know, credit where it's due to Scrooge, uh, you know, Luke Evans is a singer. I mean, I, I believe all Welshmen are by law, but he is a very good singer. Um, Jesse Buckley, again, huge, a huge background in, in music. Johnny Flynn, of course, also a huge background in, in recording as a recording artist. And Trevor Dion Nicholas, the, the original West End genie. Uh, in there as well as the Ghost of Christmas Present. So it's not like they're kind of shorting themselves on musical options, I guess, in that film. Absolutely. Um, and I feel like I feel like Will Ferrell can somewhat carry a tune because he did um, Eurovision and I didn't think he was too course, bad yeah. in Eurovision. No, not at all. Um, uh, but Ryan Reynolds, I think, just couldn't... There's something too light about his voice that I was like, I need a proper villain, a villainy like tenor tenor number where it's all snappy <laughs> and he's all like vicious and he can actually sing like um and it just yeah the, the musical numbers didn't work they tried which is all we can say they, for yeah and look it's not that they're bad it's just that they don't maybe have everything we want from a from a giant musical i mean you mentioned cynicism a couple of times and i think that's a that's a point worth kind of getting into a little bit because mm. particularly in spirited you're meant to have a really great contrast between Christmas past, Will Ferrell's character, and Clint Briggs' Ryan Reynolds' character. And, and Ryan Reynolds is doing his kind of schmarmy, super smooth kind of thing that he he sometimes does, and he does very, very well, and it's very funny. Um, but Will Ferrell seemed to be really a little bit torn between genuine, like, full-on sincerity and not wanting to go full elf. And that, I think, 
maybe made a, a difficult road for him to travel. There isn't an elf joke. There was somebody in a in a costume at one point, but it seemed like he was he was a bit worried about going to elf. I think so, and I think it's much. It's definitely a hindrance to um, his character because I feel like if he went not entirely full elf, like you never go full elf. Um, <laughs> like ninety percent elf, if because then the contrast between his character reveal would have been a lot more shocking and alarming. When you're like, oh, okay, this makes sense. Why he's going so much in the other direction versus like the somewhat cynicism he has now when he makes some a few jokes that just don't really land properly. And you're like, if you make him so so Christmas, it would have just made that reveal even more shocking. So just, I mean, because we are spoiling things, the, the reveal is that the ghost of Christmas past is Scrooge or was Ebenezer Scrooge and has become this essentially ambassador for Christmas spirit now and, and someone who has presumably for the last, what, 170 odd years been been essentially saving souls um, for himself, which is, which is a lovely, lovely idea. I think I, th- I thought that was a really solid premise, but as you say, maybe a little bit uh, confused in in the execution and because of that. Uh, let's talk about the, the look of both films. I mean, Spirited, obviously, hyper-modern, I think quite big budgets. Um, uh, you have a, the, the contrast between the kind of ghosts, rather steampunk-ish uh, kind of slightly older world, and then you have, you know, the hyper-rich kids uh, world of Ryan Reynolds. I really love the the afterlife. I think that's what, that's the pluses for Spirited. Um, and I kind of do like the intern that comes in and is all like, why is everyone singing? It's like the afterlife's a musical. Because I would love that. <laughs> if the afterlife <laughs> was truly a musical, I would absolutely go nuts for it. Um, I just think that they also made uh, Clint Briggs World a little bit too glossy and too shiny. And it just doesn't, I don't know. It doesn't feel right fitting into Scrooge because Scrooge Worlds is is very like miserable and very like cynical. And uh, last time we spoke about Scrooge and how Scrooge really captures that kind of like dreariness of Scrooge's miserable world. And actually, Clint's world seems quite good and quite lovely and quite high tech. Comparison, yeah, yeah, because it's it's very kind of you know he's got an entire window wall overlooking a city. He's got kind of soft furnishings, white furniture and, and very pale kind of a, a house. And yes, it's big and empty and you can make that Scrooge comparison. But the Scrooge of Dickens' original book, and he, and he goes on about this quite a lot, is not just a miser towards everyone else. He's also a miser towards himself. Like he won't even spend his money on himself. And so, you know, Scrooge, the, the Bill Murray classic of the 1980s, you know, Scrooge's office is big and dark and gloomy. And it is impressive in inverted commas. It is something that a successful executive might consider, you know, exhibit success. But equally, it's not nice. It's not desirable. It's not homey. Whereas I think Ryan Reynolds of House here, if somebody gave that to me, I'd be, I mean, I'd be in it like a shot, right? I mean, that is a hell of a flat. Oh, it was so, so lush and so gorgeous. And I'd be in that office. I would, you know what? I wouldn't, I'd have no guilt. Octavia Spencer has a lot of guilt for her window office room. And I'd be like, do you know what? I'd be fine. <laughs> Just settle in. Settle Just in. settle in. Um, yeah. What about Scrooge then? Because the look of this, I don't personally love this style of animation. I think it was done on a bit of a budget and no disrespect, films are. Um, and I think to some extent they've they've worked with what they have, but more than the 
the, you know, occasional moments of maybe jerkiness or, or less than peak smoothness. What got me was it's very clean. It's very bright. It's very colourful. And I wanted a bit more murk for my Victorian London. I 100% agree. Um, I think we've, we've sort of sanitised what Victorian London looks like because of Christmas. And we're like, oh, it was just, it was snow covered. It had like toys in the window and Christmas decorations and and everyone was cheery and jolly. And it's like, well, that actually wasn't wasn't the case. One, one of the reasons why Christmas carols is so resonant is because they, despite having poverty and murk and, and dirt and grime and, and the smog of the Industrial Revolution um, and all this like disease and poor people basically freezing on the streets, is that people still celebrated Christmas in their, their own way. They still like worked in it. And I think the only, the only film that's really grappled this correctly is, is probably the Muppets Christmas Carol because they have that scene and it all is all dark and gloomy and people do live in their little humble homes and the mice in the little wall but they they still celebrate Christmas because that's what Christmas means it's not not about lavishness and and toys and like and buying things it's about spending time with your loved ones yeah it, it's weird to me that we're saying be less colorful like the Muppets are but that is where we are at here in this podcast a hundred percent, a hundred percent. They just—they nailed it. They're, they're felt-coloured co- characters, but man, did they nail Victorian London grime! <laughs> and it's a—it's a devil to get off felt as well. It really is. Well, listen, it, it's not just us going on about a Christmas Carol because I—I do want to bring in a, a fundamentally expert Dickens expert. Like he, he, you know, knows everything there is to know. Paul Graham is the general secretary of the Dickens Fellowship. So I got in touch with them to to ask about what it is about A Christmas Carol in particular. That means we see multiple adaptations of it pretty much every single year, uh, even 170-something years after it was first written. So here is Paul Graham uh, talking about Dickens. Tell me, first of all, then, I guess, about the Dickens Fellowship, about the enduring appeal of Charles Dickens, more than, I think, more than 100 and, what, nearly 150 years after his death now. Yeah. Yeah, well, it was founded in um, 1902 by uh, enthusiasts in London. And um, they met at a hotel um, one October in 1902, hoping to attract um, 20, perhaps 30 people. It was They advertised in papers to try to get a crowd. And the hotel was just flooded with people. Uh, and this is long before Dickens became an academic subject before it became um, someone who was studied at schools or universities. So really it was just enthusiasts, but a lot of them were very knowledgeable. And soon there were people outside London wanting to join. So the structure was established with branches. So currently we've got about 50 branches. The majority country uh, is the USA, not surprisingly perhaps. And the UK, it's largely English-speaking countries, so Australia, Canada, uh, this country, America. But we do have some branches in non-native-speaking countries. So we've got one in Italy, uh, one in Japan, uh, one in France. So, yeah, and they're sort of autonomous. They do their own thing. But really, we come together annually uh, at a conference we hold all over the world. We've been to... In recent years, we've been to Carrara in Italy, uh, Sydney in Australia, uh, Boulogne in France. And this year, we're, 
we're trying to break the spell of COVID and have it in London. Oh, fingers crossed. That's awesome. Yeah. So, so what is it about Dickens that makes him so popular so long after after his death? Because other writers of the period who were at least rivals to him in popularity at the time have more or less vanished, and yet he remains this sort of hardy perennial. Yeah, I think it's, um, well, obviously he was incredibly productive. So we've got 15 novels, we've got um, a vast amount of journalism, a lot of the journalism um, stands up uh, today. It's about, a lot of it's about contemporary events, but it does stand up. It's so well written and it's still relevant today, which is where the Christmas Carol comes in, I think, really. He was an astonishingly um, uh, active letter writer. I mean, his letters were collected together in, 12 very large volumes um, wow. by Oxford University Press and, and new old letters still keep cropping up. So, you know, letters still keep appearing. So there has to be, uh, I mean, the Dickens Fellowship publish the letters that have been found that have come to light uh, since the 12 volume edition was, was completed. So we put them on, on our website. He was active in, in, in social affairs and political affairs. He campaigned to improve the lot of of the working class uh, and of children, again, comes across in the carol. In this country, he traveled widely. He, you know, he was a sort of a man who didn't really look backwards. He was looking forward, looking to his own time, but to the future as well. He was just so incredibly active. The readings, he was quite a brilliant actor. He was a, a brilliant conjurer. Uh, he was a magician. So, I mean, he, there was so many facets of him, a public speaker just multifaceted and um and so active and very humorous as well very funny yeah i i didn't know about the magician uh, side of him i must say yeah, that's fascinating. He, he, he actually bought um the stock of a retiring magician uh and performed as an amateur at to the children's and, and adult parties 12th night parties birthday parties oh. and he even um uh, an arch misery uh, like jane carlisle who was thomas carlisle's uh, wife said she'd never she'd been seen several professional magicians and none of them was as good as Dickens. So I think anything he turned his hand to, even hypnotism, he became um, a hypnotist and he tried to help people who had what we would recall, I guess, sort of mental health issues. He tried to help them um, through um, mesmerism, as it was called then. So yeah, a jack of all trades, but the master of most of them, it seems. Yeah. Wow, a lot of that, I guess, comes from. You know, being a bit of a showman. If you're a bit of a showman, you can, and a storyteller, you can probably deliver the magic tricks yes, better than never, most. He's never a willing lieutenant. I think he always wanted to, um, you know, to to be the commanding officer, and and he always wanted to be. If anyone did anything, he wanted to do it better. Which is, you know, the acting, the uh, the speechifying, you know, everything. He, he wanted to be the best, and, and often he it was pretty damn good. Yeah. So let's talk about a Christmas Carol because I know that it it was going to be he was he was in he was I think asked and and certainly inspired to write about the plight of poor children and he was going to do a pamphlet and he was going to do a fairly straight sort of guys we need to we need to help the kids here save the children if you will and and instead he sort of you know delays for a little bit and then he says hang on guys I've got a better idea uh, I'm I'm going to do something else just wait until the end of the year so. It, it it came from a specific point of view, I guess, and a specific aim, perhaps. Yes, um, I mean, the Carol's endurance really is remarkable, uh, given that it was written specifically for the current times, the times he was living in. 
uh, he had a friend called Dr. Southwood Smith who produced this report on child um, employment where, you know, very, very young children were doing horrible demanding works, working down mines and working in factories, very, very long hours getting injured. Um, and he thought initially he'd produce a, a pamphlet, but he realized that a pamphlet would go the way of all pamphlets. It'd be filed away and not, nothing would be done. So he gave a talk to the uh, Manchester Athenaeum. Uh, and while he was in Manchester, he saw you know, the poverty happening there and the, the children working in factories there, the very long hours. And he came up with this idea of actually writing a fiction that would be more effective, more appealing, would get a far wider uh, spread than any, any political pamphlet would. Um, that's how that was really the, the genesis of the Christmas Carol, and 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 he he developed the story. I mean, there's there's all sorts of I've read. I mean, I've only been researching this for a couple of days, and I, I wanted to reread the story as well. But there's there's all these conflicting accounts of oh, he was inspired by this. No, no, he was inspired by my neighbour or my neighbour. But but he certainly like developed the story, of taking long walks around London and just you know just thinking to himself basically at night. Is that correct? Yeah, um, he, he wrote it very very. Quickly, because I mean, bear in mind he he was writing simultaneously uh, Martin Chuzzlewit, which was appearing serially. So that that had to be done. That was that was his priority um, because he was committed to that. Whereas Christmas Carol, he had to really try and twist the arms of his publishers because people just didn't write really one-off Christmas stories, and uh, Chapman and Hall weren't convinced that this would be a seller. Um, um, so, yeah, he had to convince them that it would be a, a good idea. And um, as a child, he was very imaginative. And he was, um, I think the, the idea of producing something that had the, the supernatural element, the contemporary element, the sort of the practical Christian element, uh, the humorous element, it's, it just all, all came together over a relatively short period. I mean, uh, it's, it's staggering that he... It was published on the 19th of December. I mean, that just seems ridiculously close to, Chris, to Christmas, to sell as a Christmas book. But it, it, the first edition of 6,000 sold out before Christmas Day. So clearly, you know, word of mouth and very good reviews um, uh, led to its, its sale. But anyway, it was written incredibly quickly. Yeah. It, it's it's really fascinating to me that you know nowadays when people are publishing books for Christmas, um, they are probably de delivered by about February and they're on shelves by September. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so uh, so that the sheer speed of it is is kind of astonishing. Yeah. But but what is it about this book that was so radical? Because his publishers were dead wrong, weren't they? I mean, it's never been out of print since no. ever. Yes. Um, so so what what is it about this story that stood out so much? I think it's a it's it's a mixture. It's a mixture of fairy tale. There's definitely a sort of a fairy tale element there. There's a mixture of sort of, as um, I say, the, the morality, um, the morality of just just being a bit kinder to people at Christmas. There is an underlying, I think, Christian element. Sort of, uh, Dickens was sort of a, a New Testament uh, Christian without having any strong affiliations to any particular sect. Um, there's 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 the humour, and of course there's um, as always the child in trouble, a child who will either live or die, and it depends upon you know one man's choice whether that child will, will live or die. Which which in an age of you know child mortality um, being as high as it was, 
Um, there was the age of trying to resolve the contemporary um, political and economic conditions. It was the hungry 40s, chartism, uh, it was the age of chartism, of people trying to campaign for better conditions, for political rights. So, so and this was sort of a, a political work without being overtly political. I mean, Dickens's subsequent um, Christmas story, The Chimes, which appeared uh, the following year, uh, was criticised for being sort of too overtly socialist in a way, whereas it was very deft in A Christmas Carol. The message was there, but it wasn't, It wasn't. you know, he, he talked about delivering a, um, a sledgehammer blow on behalf of the, the poor, but it was very deft, it was very subtle. Uh, it wasn't hammering people over the head with, look, Put the, the poor need help. It was it was a lot more uh, subtle than that. So, and I think that's you know it's appealed to people. I mean, in a way, it's it's, it's a children's story, but in a way, it's an adult. It's a very adult story too. It, it appeals to all ages, I think. And um, it was so popular when it uh, first appeared. Uh, the first edition sold out very quickly, and by February the following year, there were. Eight theatrical productions in London alone of the Christmas Carol. Uh, it just it just caught the public imagination, and it didn't seem to threaten anyone. It was just uh, appeared to be saying, just just be kind, just just be good, just think of other people. Yeah, I mean, well, you bring up the adaptations that that appeared immediately, which brings me neatly on to sort of the subject of of the podcast, which is Christmas movies, because this year it is the thirtieth anniversary of Muppets Christmas Carol, yeah. which. God help me, I don't know what Dickens would have thought of that, but it's 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 much more faithful than 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 some, I'll be honest. Yeah. And we also have two new adaptations, um, Scrooge, A Christmas Carol, which which is on Netflix, and Spirited, which is a musical sort of update, continuation almost of the story uh, on Apple Plus. So it just feels like it's it's still everywhere. It is still one of the sort of definitive Christmas stories that people keep going back to. Yeah, uh, undoubtedly. I, I think um, that, in a way, is 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 probably the reason why it's 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 popularity. The people who've never actually read it know the story because if they've not seen it uh, on television, if not seen Scrooge McDuck, for instance, or do you say the Muppets? Um, let alone the, you know, the great um, Alice Sim uh, performance, uh, or George C. Scott. Uh, they'll have probably seen a cartoon version, they'll have uh, heard it on the radio, they'll have seen a, a television production. It's, it's, it's everywhere. It, it seems to be, nowadays, a sort of an equivalent to um, a pantomime, because it's on at so many theatres. I mean, the RSC, uh, it's on at the Old Vic again. I mean, it's on at the Old Vic every Christmas for the last four or five years. Um, and I'm going to see one in, uh, in above a pub in in, in Turnham Green. Everyone everyone does it. And I think so many so many actors want to either do it as Dickens adapted it for a for a reading, um, or to play Scrooge because it's obviously it's a, it's a great it's a great part. And it, it's you know the idea of of redemption, the you know, the religious the Christian idea of redemption is is, is certainly there. But um, yeah, it's hard to escape even if you don't read the book. Which of course was, was true in, in Dickens's day, because when he wrote it, and it was in, um, he insisted on such lavish, lavish um, uh, production values with the uh, with the illustrations, which were hand coloured, um, the, the gilt, you know, the binding, everything was beautiful. It cost five shillings. Well, you know, Bob Cratchit in uh, in a Christmas Carol he gets fifteen shillings a week, so that's a third of his a third of his 
you know, weekly uh, pay on one single book. So a lot of people didn't actually, you know, the poor, the working class probably couldn't afford it, but it could be read to them. They could buy one of the many very, very cheap um, sort of um, pirated uh, works because it, it was pirated immediately. Uh, people were producing very cheap, very nasty subtext versions of the Christmas Carol. So, so the story, you know, became famous without people having having actually to read it. Yes, um, I want to ask about some of the the uh, adaptations. So, I mean, because it has been adapted as long as there have been movies. I think yeah. 1901 was the first British British effort, but the Alistair Sims one you mentioned, which I think is is that 1951. Is is often cited as the one that is sort of definitive. Where where do you stand on that one? Yeah, I, I love that. It, it's not doesn't strictly state to the story as in the text, um, but I think it, it it is brilliant. I think any any adaptation does probably have to crop something. I mean, you never see in a well, you rarely see in an adaptation. Put it that way. Um, Scenes where Scrooge is taken in the air and over land and sea to see, you know, people singing Christmas carols in in lighthouses, um, people in mimes, etc. Um, but but I think Alistair Sim is, is is probably my favourite. I've never seen the Muppets, but people who have seen it do tell me that it's it's as you say, it's the most faithful reproduction uh, of the lot. Um, I, I, I don't know about most faithful, but it does lift entire blocks of dialogue. Um, it has Michael Caine obviously playing Scrooge yes. dead straight, and then yeah. he's just surrounded by Muppets. Um, you know, all the characters, like, you know, Bob Cratchit is still a well-meaning guy. He just happens to be a frog. Mrs. Cratchit is still prone to outrage against you know, Scrooge, but she just happens to be also Miss Piggy. Yeah. You know, so you have you have all of these kind of layers. And I have to say, the ghosts are pretty much exactly as described in the books, yeah. which, because I had read it as a child. I'd seen the Muppets as a child, but I hadn't sort of put them together until this year. But, you know, the, the ghost of Christmas past is is the closest I think I've seen on screen to, to what's described in the book. Yes. Well, I think the idea of, getting the scary elements right. I mean, obviously, a lot of children go to see it at the theatre, but getting the scary elements right, children, I don't think, don't mind too much being a bit scared. And then getting, you know, the humour right uh, and getting, you know, the overriding moral of the tale right. I mean, that's that, that's that's asking quite a lot. But, you know, I'm, I'm, so to say I haven't seen it, so I can't really comment upon it, but people do tell me that it's, it's a very good adaptation. Uh, I think the George C. Scott one was quite, was quite dark, and of course, with the television version last year, which was even darker. I mean, most theatre productions I've seen recently like to delve into the backstory of Scrooge. How did Scrooge get to be as he is? It's hinted at in the text, but a lot of people try to make it um, uh, explicit on stage about his his, his upbringing, his uh, his father mistreating him, that sort of thing. So. Which is fine. I mean, if people want to, you know, people have messed around with the story to some extent ever since it was, you know, since 1843, which is fine. It hasn't done it any harm, I don't think. Have you seen Scrooged, the um, the one with Bill Murray in the sort of 1980s? Uh, yeah, I've seen. I, I haven't seen it right through. I've seen. I've seen bits of it. I mean. <sighs> Not really my thing, but I, you, know, you can't be too um, precious about these things. I mean, it's a sort of homage, which is which is fine. Yeah. Although it was written specifically for that time and, and that situation in in England in 1843, 
um, it, it, its message is still relevant and if it needs adaptation and um, people think that that you know helps the relevance um, then I, I have no problem with that. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And I think as well, like it, it feels like it has informed whole genres of Christmas movies that don't directly take the story. They don't have three ghosts. They don't have a, a Scrooge, if you will, but they have something of that tone. You know, I'm thinking of something like It's a Wonderful Life, you know, yes. one of the definitive Christmas movies, but it has that same kind of darkness and melancholy. Yes. That, that then allows the kind of release and, and, you know, joy of the Christmas scenes at the end because it's kind of, it's, it's counterbalanced them almost. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's the element of redemption and redemption coming through that particular season, even in an age where, as we found out yesterday, that you know, the majority of people in the country may not say they're Christians anymore, but it is a sort of the Christian message of, of redemption uh, and things look darker before the dawn, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah. Perhaps without knowing it, Dickens hit a, a, a theme which is just universal for all times, for all people. Really. Absolutely. And just to finish up, I mean, I, you know, you mentioned already, and I, I know as well from just my reading, but he, he wrote other Christmas stories. Yes. Um, you know, where do you think they sort of fell short of this, or 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 did they? You know, maybe maybe they're just as good, and they just haven't been quite as well known. They definitely fell short. Yes. Um, <laughs> I mean, apart from one other, uh, which is The Haunted Man, which is the last one he wrote, which I think is what I think is the second best of his Christmas stories, um, none of the others relate to Christmas at all, apart from the fact that they were published for the Christmas market. Uh, the Haunted Man is published, uh, was, uh, does refer to, um, to Christmas, it's Christmas time, and it's about a man who's, who's sad and morose and who's who's been disappointed in love really and wants to forget that he was betrayed by his best friend with his with his fiance and he wants to uh, he wants his memory to be erased but then i think the, you know the message is that we need our memories good or good bad indifferent they all help to make us what we are so i think that was the second best the uh, the chimes succeeded a christmas carol and that's you know more overtly political it's more of its of its time it's more it features characters who you could um, identify as uh, political characters of 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 that year uh, and that really was criticized for its it's a more overt uh, political message um, and the ones in between the chimes uh, and the haunted man probably the best the, the least said the better really <laughs> Fair enough, but, but but people stick to and actually go back and read a Christmas Carol. They're still yeah. onto a winner, I think. Yeah, I, I know people who read it annually, uh, and I can understand it. But you know, it's not like um, Bleak House or Dombey and Son. It's very short. You can read it in uh, in a night or a couple of nights, and I think it still it still delivers. It still delivers. Yeah, it does. Well, Paul Graham, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. 
Hi everybody, my name's Helen. And I'm Kobe. And we're from Flix Watcher, a podcast in the strip media family. We are a movie podcast and we review films that are just on Netflix in the UK. So if you've ever struggled to find a film on Netflix to watch, we're the podcast for you. We have guests on from other podcasts, big and small, just like these guys that you listen to now. They choose the films and we rate them and discuss them with our unique scoring system. You can find Flix Watcher on any podcast app by searching Flix Watcher. That's F-L-I-X Watcher. And if you want more information about any of the other podcasts in the Strip Media family, just visit www.strips.media to find out more. All right. And that was Paul Graham of the Dickens Fellowship. So, yeah, it is it is amazing, right, isn't it? We're talking about two quite big budget uh releases same year of essentially a Christmas Carol. Uh and and it's still with us. What is what is it? Is it that, you know, as the Dan Stevens film a couple of years ago said, Dickens is the man who invented Christmas, that to some degree you can't have a lot of this without Dickens and maybe the the, the Victorians more widely? What what is it about this story that we keep coming back to? I think everyone wants the worst person in the world to get visited by free ghosts and change their ways. There was an amazing joke about Jeff Bezos and he he gave up a lot of his money recently towards charity and someone basically went, he's been visited by free ghosts. And I think that's the kind of energy that I, what spirited, I suppose, Gil grasped correctly is that no one is irredeemable. No one and everyone has a chance to come back and turn their lives around. And I guess that is still a message that warms our hearts, that Christmas can bring out the best in people and remind people of what makes Christmas and love and and hope so magical and so like spellbinding. And I, I guess that's kind of resonant for for however centuries and decades we've had this story. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think that's right. And I think it's such a... It's such a well-crafted portrait as well of someone coming to terms with their own faults. You know, so so Scrooge is literally toured through the things that made him the way he is and forced to confront them, but also forced to confront the effect that that has had on other people and the ways that he has not only been hurt, but also hurt others. And I think you begin to see, you know, like it, it sort of makes psychological sense the way that he opens up in that in that story. It is, it's very carefully crafted. I think in that sense, I don't know. I mean, even Dickens, when he wrote several more Christmas stories, um, didn't quite recapture the same magic. There's something about that combination of miserliness and and joy that that particularly works. Absolutely, it's like the the world's greatest free therapy session for Scrooge. It really is. He's basically on the ghost's couch, isn't he? Tell tell me about your parents, you know, or at least your school days. Um, and and it is clear that he has he's been through the war at Scrooge. Like he hasn't had it easy. You know, he, he's clearly had a very unhappy childhood, very very difficult family circumstances that have made him into this miser and made him into this misery guts. Um, but equally, as 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 the story and these films all tell us, it's, it's ultimately not an excuse. You still need to try and be a good person. Absolutely, and I think that's a, a, an important message. That one of the biggest takeaways. What I love, Spirited did touch upon this. Is is that like how did you know that Ebenezer has really changed? And I quite like the fact that the novella ends that he was true to his word and he he kept trying and he kept the 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 message of Christmas all year long. And it's it's all about, that's the, the big takeaway, is it's not just about Christmas, it's about taking that and doing it day in day 
and proving to yourself and proving to people around you that you care and you love them and helping out. And that's why I, it's just such a great story. It is. Uh, and even if these aren't the very peak of a Christmas Carol adaptations, as we've discussed, they do essentially both still offer something for us this Christmas. So if you are into, you know, Ryan Reynolds comedy in particular, great songs about afternoons, um, you know, Spirited is probably the one for you. And look, hey, I'm not, no judgment. If you're, if your kink is hot Scrooge, then Scrooge a Christmas Carol. Scrooge Christmas Carol. And join me on hot Ebenezer Scrooge talk because it's very, it's, there's a fan base there. <laughs> I, I dread to think what the ghosts are doing to him on hot Ebenezer Scrooge talk, frankly. I I, I, I don't even tell me. I don't want to know. Um, I should also mention, by the way, my, my favourite cameo. I, I recognise that, you know, Dame Judy is is pretty unimpeachable. But my favourite throwaway joke in Spirited is actually when they're in the Hall of the Redeemed, all these people who have been saved by the ghosts. And one of the people on the wall is Dolly Parton. Um. I just love that for us. I think it's hilarious because um, if you're making a list of great people in the world who have done good things with their power and their money and their fame, 100% Dolly Parton should be up there. We did discuss her Christmas on the Square Christmas movie uh, a couple of years back, and perhaps it's best to draw a veil over some of its quality issues. However, she has done enormous amounts to you know raise money and, and you know give books to children and give to charity develop covid vaccines for god's sake yeah yeah it, it absolutely makes sense to me that she was at one point visited by three ghosts and became one of the greatest absolutely and how you know she wrote nine to five i like to think that's her okay. turning point <laughs> <laughs> okay well there's a lot to unpack there just one thing that we haven't discussed that we did in the original, and I, ca I cannot stress this enough, greatest podcast ever recorded that, that we lost. But um, you talked to me a little bit about Victorian slang, and I think people need to hear this from you. Please tell me about your favourite bits of Victorian slang. Oh, absolutely. I have three favourites that I use quite often. Um, one of them is um, arf, arf and arf, which means you've had too many arfs and you're quite drunk. So if you ever feel like bringing that in over Christmas period as well, oh. Granddads. So arf, how, arf, how would arf. one use that in a sentence? It's like you've had half, half and half. Yeah, or like granddad's a bit half, half and half. <laughs> oh, okay. Useful. Yeah. Exactly. Um, temporary melancholia uh, is got the morbs. Um, morbs. Which, oh. So like I watched Morbius and then I got the morbs might be a sentence you could use that in. Absolutely perfect. Yeah, absolutely. Works so well. Um, but my ultimate favourite is a perfect, perfect woman, um, which and they had a lot of slang for perfect women, but the best one is the jammiest bit of jam. The jammiest bit of jam. Well, I mean, that just, that is a perfect note to end on because thank you, Sarah Cook, the very jammiest bit of jam. It's been an absolute pleasure and Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. Thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this episode of Bar Humbug. Please join us next time for more Christmas movies madness. In the meantime, I've been your host, Helen O'Hara. This podcast is edited by Ben Williams and produced by Kobe Omanaka for Stripped Media. And if you've enjoyed the pod, please do rate us with five shiny Christmas stars wherever you listen to your podcasts. But whatever you do, happy holidays!
You just heard a stripped media production. 